Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and then continuing through 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1, 1-2-11. through 2, 11. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Now there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina, Benina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you, only wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, I pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive it that we would see even in this slice of Old Testament history the glory of Christ who was to come and who has come to save his people from their sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as you are probably aware, today is the traditional Western observance of Christmas, the day where we commemorate our Lord's birth. Perhaps it might seem a little bit odd to turn on Christmas morning to a book of Old Testament history, uh, one set near the end of the time of the judges. This was not a time where a lot of good things were going on among God's people. The nation was corrupt. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Great immorality and idolatry and rebellion against God ruled that day all over the land. Now, the Bible, despite many making efforts to read it as such, it does not begin in Matthew 1 or Luke 1 and 2, where we see the conception and birth of Christ. The story of Christ, the story of a son of promise born to deliver his people, is told over and over again all throughout the scriptures, including being told through the types in the Old Testament. These history books in the Old Testament 
among many other things, they are our family history. And then we see the story of God's redemption of his people unfolding. Began unfolding in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Not long ago, if you've been with us, we saw in Genesis 3 that immediately after the fall, the promise was made to the woman of her seed that would crush the serpent, that would destroy Satan and sin and death. We see elsewhere how Abraham received Isaac, the promised son. And then his faith was so tested when he was told to sacrifice Isaac, but then a substitute was offered in Isaac's place. We see in the Exodus and the wilderness years how God delivered His people out of captivity as a picture of our deliverance from sin and misery. Or in Judges, there was Samson, another promised son born to a barren woman who brings for a time deliverance to the people of Israel. And so today in 1 Samuel, we see another powerful picture of the hope of Christ and the hope of Christmas. And so this book of 1 Samuel, it begins with a birth. It's a fitting place to begin a book and a fitting place to look on Christmas morning. It's not just any birth. It is a birth that is packed with significance and symbolism and the power of God working among his people. In Samuel's birth, we see something more than Samuel. We see a picture of greater realities to come and that have come. And so we'll look at this account of Samuel's birth in four points. First, a divided house in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. Second, a desperate prayer in verses 9 through 18 of chapter 1. Then third, a devoted son, that is verse 19 through the end of chapter 1. And then fourth and finally, a doxology, which we see in the verses we read from chapter 2. So first we will look at a divided house in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. The first character introduced in 1 Samuel 1 is this certain man, named Elkanah. Now we see here his lineage, and we see that he lived in the land of Ephraim, one of the sons of Joseph. Now Elkanah was actually probably not from the tribe of Ephraim, descended from Ephraim. He was probably a Levite living among the Ephraimites. Because we see in another genealogy in 1 Chronicles 6 that Elkanah is listed there as a Levite. But the Levites, unlike the other tribes of Israel, they didn't have their own allotment of land. They lived in and among the other tribes. They had some cities and fields, but no major territory. Because their purpose was the service of God. They were set aside for the priesthood. All the priests were Levites, and others had various other tasks in the preservation and maintenance of the worship of God. Now, we don't know a lot about this man, Elkanah, other than what we're told here. We do learn that he has two wives, Hannah and Penina. Now, of these two wives, Hannah is barren. She has thus far been unable to have children, whereas Penina, on the other hand, does have children. Now, it doesn't take a lot of guessing to see immediately the problems that could arise in such a situation. A man has two wives. Not long ago in Genesis 4, we looked at the sin of the Cainite Lamech. The Lamech descended from Cain and how he was the first to take multiple wives and how this was a break, a deviation from God's good design. 
We looked at other examples in the Bible of how bigamy and polygamy produce nothing but strife and sorrow and bitterness. There is nothing in the Bible that positively reflects on such behavior, on polygamy or multiple wives, multiple partners, despite what many critics of the Bible say in our day. And Elkanah's bigamy, Elkanah's marrying two wives is no exception. One of these wives bears him children, the other cannot. For the childless wife, this is a situation of great grief and despair. Children, after all, are a blessing. Further, back in that day in the ancient world, children represented stability and security. They didn't have things like a social security system or Medicare or pensions. So who would take care of the elderly? Their children. If Elkanah died, who would take care of Hannah? Would it be Penina or her children? That's pretty unlikely, given what we see about their relationship here. So not only is there this sorrow of childlessness for Hannah, but as we see with Penina in verses 6 and 7, she would rub the fact that Hannah was barren in Hannah's face. To the point that even when they're going up to the house of the Lord, the tabernacle to worship, Penina would be provoking Hannah and goading her even there. Now, Penina, while her behavior is inappropriate, is not entirely without reasons. Because Elkanah played favorites with his wives. Now, most of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they involved food, either some kind of meat or some kind of grain. And usually not all of the meat would be consumed when the sacrifice was offered. Portions of it were given back to those who brought the sacrifice for them to eat. And so when it would come time to divvy up that food on these pilgrimages to Shiloh, Elkanah gave more of the food to Hannah. Now it seems he was doing this in an attempt to console her and to show his love for her. But the result is just more of the pettiness and resentment from Penina. And it's not entirely unjustified either. For those of you who are married, imagine if you had to share your spouse with someone else. And imagine that your spouse made clear in actions and in words that you're the second favorite in this arrangement. It would be awful. And this is an awful situation that Elkanah has made and perpetuated here. Now we also see in this opening section the introduction of the priests, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now they are their own mess of a family. Hophni and Phinehas, they are horribly corrupt priests. Chapter 2 records that they steal from the people of God, and they steal from God's sacrifices, and they commit gross acts of sexual immorality in their priestly service. And all Eli can really do is complain about it. He doesn't really do anything significant to stop these great evils among his sons. So Hannah is in a hard situation. She is childless and she is resented in her own home by a rival wife and children. And Elkanah is trying to help, but he really just seems to be making things worse because he can't fix this problem. But there is someone who can fix this problem. And this brings us to our second point. After the divided house, we see Hannah driven to a desperate prayer in verses 9 through 18 of chapter 1. So Hannah's barrenness and this taunting by the rival wife continue year after year. 
And it seems to come to a head at these pilgrimages to Shiloh, to the tabernacle. These are supposed to be joyous occasions of feasting and worship. But as we see at the beginning of verse 9, this particular occasion was anything but. Now, after they have done their feasting, this eating and drinking, Hannah is so vexed, she is so troubled in her soul by her plight that she is compelled to pray. But this is not any normal prayer. We read in verse 10 that she is in bitterness of soul and anguish. She is so moved that she does not even restrain herself in the presence of Eli the priest, because verse 9 notes that he is there watching. Now some of you today, you might be facing great sorrow and struggle in your lives, and maybe you've put on your brave face to come here to worship today and hope that nobody will notice that anything is wrong. Well, Hannah is in a situation in this text that she is so tormented, she is so torn apart that she can't even keep herself together at the tabernacle in the presence of the priests. Now, it is not insignificant that she turns to pray here. As Richard Phillips notes, uh, I quote here, This may seem surprising given that it was the Lord who had closed her womb, as Hannah knew. Many people will turn away from God when feeling his hand of affliction, or else simply resign themselves to their fate. Christians sometimes advise friends in such a situation simply to move on and give thanks to God for the trial. We should be thankful to God for everything, even trials, but that does not mean that we should be resigned to our situation. End quote. So, when we face situations of sorrow and of difficulty, it is okay to grieve when faced with grief. It is okay to struggle when life presents struggles. But first and foremost, before anything else and above everything else, whenever these difficulties of life arise, we should turn to God in prayer. Now, it is true that God has brought this situation to pass. It is God who grants or withholds children. It is God who opens and closes the womb. And so Hannah, being faithful to God, believing God, even knowing that he has given this bitter providence, turns to God in a desperate and gripping and sorrowful prayer. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Now, it might appear at first glance that Hannah is trying to bargain with God, is trying to cut a deal. If you do X, I will do Y for you. Now, it would not be right to pray in this way. God is not a vending machine where if we put in money or other things and push the right buttons, God will give us what we want. But when we look at the background of what Hannah is saying, we can see some purer motivations behind it. Note this very last thing that she says, and no razor shall come upon his head. Now this is alluding to a certain Old Testament practice by the Israelites called a Nazarite vow, which is spelled out in Numbers chapter 6. But in brief summary, a man who took a Nazarite vow became holy, became set apart for God through the taking and following of certain rules. So for instance, a Nazarite could not cut his hair. A Nazarite could not go near dead bodies, even the dead bodies of close family members if they died. 
Probably the most well-known Nazarite in Scripture is Samson. He wasn't a very good Nazarite. He often handled dead things, went out among foreign women, eventually sold out the secret of his hair. So so Samson was not the perfect Nazarite, but he is at least the most well-known example. So Samuel is to be born under similar circumstances. A barren woman desires a son, and as the condition, this son will be holy. This son will be set apart for the Lord's service. Hannah is basically praying, if you give me a son, he's yours. He will be set apart for your will and your purposes. Phillips notes that this would mean that she would even give up the joys and benefits of raising this child. She's not going to be there when the child grows up. She's not going to be there for many of those important first moments of the child's life. She desires a child, but is willing to wholeheartedly commit him to God's purposes and not her own. This can be something of a challenge to parents. It can be difficult for Christian parents to balance their desire to have and be with their children with the purposes of God and the kingdom of God. I've heard of cases where parents seek to deter their children from missions and ministry in faraway places because of the desire to keep the kids and grandkids close to home. Yes, we love our families and we want them as close as we can, but this is a secondary purpose to the work of God and the work of the gospel and the work of building the church. And whatever is lost to service of God in this life is rewarded with eternal and abundant life. And this includes even if we lose the closeness to our family. Now, back to our situation at the tabernacle. Remember that Eli is watching Hannah pray with interest. He's he's focused on what's going on. Now, Hannah is not praying out loud. She's apparently mouthing some words, but not actually saying them. So what does Eli think when he sees this? Well, he thinks Hannah must be drunk. Now, this is where we might start to see some of the issues, some of the problems with what's going on at the tabernacle in Shiloh and in the spiritual state of Israel. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here's a woman who is a true and sincere worshiper of God in a difficult situation, pouring out her heart to God doing what David does in Psalm 142 too, when he writes, I pour out my complaint before him, I declare before him my trouble. And so Eli sees this, and where does his mind go? She must be drunk. Now is it because Eli is just simply not used to seeing people at the temple in intense and devoted prayer? It could be, based on what we see in First Samuel, that this is the sad state of things in Israel. But Hannah defends herself, explaining to Eli that she is not drunk, but she has been pouring out her soul and praying. Now, at least as is recorded here, she does not tell Eli at this point the specifics of her request. But realizing perhaps that he was in the wrong to be so cynical, Eli responds more gently to Hannah. He says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. So for his flaws, we do see Eli at least fulfilling part of his priestly duty, mediating the people's requests to God. He's not a good priest, 
but at least he's doing part of his job here. So, we have seen this divided house and how that produces this situation where we see desperate prayer. But now in our third section, in verse 19 through the end of chapter 1, we see the answer to this prayer in the bringing of a devoted son. Remember that Hannah promised to give a son, should she have one, to the service of the Lord. And then she follows through. It seems simple enough. Hannah made a promise. She ought to keep it. But how easy would it have been for her not to? How often do we ask God for things and then he provides them and then once we have what we asked for, we never pay God another thought. We might not even thank him, much less follow through on all the good things we told him and told ourselves we would do if our prayers were answered. Vows are serious business. Our confessional standards take the business of vows very seriously, treating them as an act of worship and also a very important part of our third commandment obligations. In our day, we don't think about vows a lot, but in the world before ours, they were a very serious and very solemn matter. When we vow, we invoke God's name and in his name agree that we will do something. And so to fail to do so is to take God's name in vain. It is to blaspheme. It is the most egregious of sins, the one that God promises not to hold guiltless. And so, recognizing the severity of what she has vowed, Hannah does what she vowed. She recognizes the validity of this vow even in what she names the child, Samuel. Samuel is sort of a combination of various Hebrew words, but it means essentially the one asked from the Lord. She knows that this boy that is born to her is the answer to her prayer and that she is obligated under her vow. Now she doesn't go to the sacrifice the next year because the child must be weaned. Here one might wonder if she was hesitating. But then we find out the next time, probably the next year, we don't hear of any more intervening years, she does take Samuel. He's just old enough to be weaned, just old enough to start eating and drinking on his own. He's in the transition zone between being an infant and a toddler. He is so very young, and yet Hannah will not withhold him from the Lord. She also brings to the Lord a large and generous sacrifice. Now, some translations say that she brings one three-year-old bull, Others say three bowls. I think three bowls is correct when you look at the proportions of the other elements. That much weed and that a full skin of wine would make sense to go with that. There, she actually brought three bowls. Now that is a lot of money. That's a lot of material resources. Those of you who are in the cattle industry could probably attest to the value of three quality bowls. But Hannah does not hold anything back from the Lord. Is it not enough that she's offering her son? But she also does an additional great service to the Lord. She shows great faith and great thankfulness to God by her actions. She upholds her vow and then some. Now it should not be lost on the reader as we look at this account of Samuel's birth, particularly here on Christmas Day. There is something of a pattern of these miraculous births in Scripture. Women who are old or who are barren, who would otherwise be implausible for them to have children, 
receive a special visitation from the Lord and conceive and have children. This, of course, happened with Abraham and Sarah, who received their promised son Isaac, who was specifically purposed to carry on the covenant blessings. And then Isaac and Rebekah themselves struggled to have a child before they were eventually given Jacob and Esau. For as mentioned before, Samson was born to a barren woman as a Nazarite set aside for the purpose of judging Israel. Later, John the Baptist is born to an elderly couple that is without child, himself something of a Nazarite, and commissioned to be the forerunner, the messenger of the coming Christ. Now, of course, all of these births are pointing us to somewhere ultimate. They are in various ways types and shadows of the one particular significant birth that trumps all of these. See, it's difficult, but not inconceivable, for older women or women who have previously struggled with barrenness to, at times, conceive and have children. We even see that sometimes in our day. What if the woman was a virgin, unmarried, had never known a man? You can see where I'm going here. Because that happens only one time in Scripture, only one time in the history of the world. And it is the most significant birth of all, is the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the birth of all births because He is the man of all men. He is the culmination of all redemptive history. He is Son of God and Son of Man coming to save the people from their sins. He is the prophet, priest, and king, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. So all these other births, Abraham and Isaac, Samson, Samuel, John the Baptist, they all look forward to him. Jesus is the better Samuel. He is the son born to fulfill all of God's righteousness. He is the better Eli. He is our priest who mediates between us and the Father, who does not approach us with suspicion and doubt, but intercedes for us and through him, we can bring our needs and our prayers to God. He is the better sacrifice, not brought year after year like bulls and goats, but the once for all washing away of the sins of his people. So, we saw the divided house, the desperate prayer, the devoted son who is a picture of the greater son to come. We have one last piece of this story of the birth of Samuel, which we see in these verses from chapter 2 we will look at just briefly, a doxology, a beautiful and glorious song of praise that Hannah offers to God for the great things that he has done. She opens saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. And then we see her praise God for his power. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. This horn, it would be a person's strength. Some translations just say their strength. But she also talks about God's power over his enemies. In verse 4, we see the mighty of the world having their weapons broken. For with this power comes not the promotion of the strong, but the exaltation of the weak. Now Hannah perhaps understands this more than anyone. She was in a weak and disadvantaged position. She was tormented in her home. She was childless, and yet God raised her up. He gave her a son who will now be the great prophet and judge of Israel. The Lord is praised for his knowledge. 
In verse 3, we read that He knows the actions and words of all. Anna knows this. This is why, for instance, she would not even consider breaking her vow. The Lord is sovereign over birth and death. In verse 5, the barren has born seven, the number of fullness and completion. And we see in verse 6 that the Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol the place of death and raises up. This is an expression of confidence, not only that God is sovereign over death, but that He is even able to raise the dead. Many modern scholars like to say that, well, there's really no concept of a resurrection in the Old Testament. I don't know how you could look at a text like this and deny this. Hannah knew very clearly and believed in a God who could and would raise the dead. God is able to reverse human fortunes. The hungry cease to hunger while those who are full are now hungry. The weak become strong and the strong weak. This song could be summarized in one brief statement. It would be that God is able. God is powerful. God is able from this barren woman in a divided family, in a corrupt and failing nation, to bring forth a son. A son who will be great among the prophets. And yet, most of all, God is able to save. The song is bookended with this. At the end of verse 1, we Read that Hannah's mouth derides her enemies because she rejoices in the Lord's salvation. Now, where is salvation found? Well, Hannah, like a good Israelite, who we see here is faithful in her bringing of sacrifices and offerings, is participating in Christ by the types and shadows. It's not the sacrifices themselves, but it is that Hannah has faith. And through what God has prescribed, she worships and she sees Christ. See, all this shedding of the blood of animals, it doesn't really wash away sins. It doesn't really save anyone. But it points the people of the Old Testament to the reality to come. And Hannah herself, at the conclusion of this song, has some insights into greater things to come. In verse 10, she says, "...the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces." From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Who is the Lord's king? Who is the king that the Lord is bringing? Who is Hannah talking about? Is it Samuel? Samuel will primarily be a prophet. He'll also be a judge. He'll have something of a ruling role, but he's not a king. Or else why else would the people come to Samuel later and ask him for a king? So is it Saul? Is it the first king they finally receive? I mean, things with Saul start okay, but quickly his reign falls into corruption and languishing and decay. Is it David? David is the most prototypical king, but even he has his great flaws and failings. Is it Solomon? Solomon goes astray from God because of his many wives. All the other kings that come after that, they're weak and failing in various ways. They die. In fact, eventually, both the monarchies of the northern and southern kingdoms fall apart and the lands are captured. So Hannah is seeing forward to something greater. There is a king yet to come who will judge the ends of the earth who builds a kingdom from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
who will be God's anointed? That word for anointed being Messiah. Hannah here is in this song testifying about the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. He will, by his once-for-all sacrifice, bring salvation to all of God's people. So we see here in this text this morning, this birth of Samuel, but this story tells a greater story. The story that's unfolding throughout all of Scripture. The story of salvation, the story of redemption in Jesus Christ. Samuel's birth is a type of Christ's birth. Samuel was a son of promise to Hannah, but pointing us to the ultimate son of promise, Jesus Christ, who came in a lowly estate, was made under the law, who suffered all the miseries of this life, even death on a cross. All this to deliver us from our sins and misery. And then was raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so the question is this, do you have this salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ today? What Hannah saw in a shadow, we know in substance. Jesus Christ came into the world, fulfilled the law perfectly, and died to satisfy the wrath of God against sinners. He was raised up from the dead by the power of God to raise the dead that even Hannah remarked on in her day. And he has ascended into heaven. Now we are all sinners, but the iniquity of God's people is not laid on lambs or goats or wolves. It's not laid on our good works. There's nothing that any of us can do to save ourselves. Rather, salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. And because he lives, we know that we too can live. So the call today is this. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ today for eternal life and salvation. For those of you today who do know Christ, this is the message that we proclaim to a lost and dying world. This is the motivation, the reason that we have to gather and worship, to love God and to love neighbor and to do all that we do. And so may we all believe in Christ, trust in Christ, and honor Christ in our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have received. How even in the Old Testament, how hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, we see Christ revealed. And as we celebrate Christ this day, as we celebrate his incarnation, may we also be mindful of the work he has done for us. His life, his suffering, death, his resurrection, and how he is our only hope of salvation. May we be faithful to proclaim this hope to a lost and dying world and to love you and love our neighbor as you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn today is number 146, which comes to us from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates.